Thank you very much. What a lovely welcome. Good to see you all this, uh, this afternoon. I trust you are all well. So, in the beginning, God created Adam. Could we get the house lights up, actually? Is, would that be possible? Um, anyone, if they could knock them house lights up a bit for us. So, in the beginning, God created Adam. And right at the beginning, Adam was lonely. Anyone know that? Adam was lonely. So, God spoke to Adam and he said, Adam, he said, I could create you a companion so you won't be lonely. So Adam said, well, how will that work? So God said, so this companion will be called woman. So Adam said, okay, and what will she do? And, and God said, well, woman will be your companion. She'll be there for you to tend to your every need. She will cook for you. She will clean for you. She will wash. <laughs> She will wash your clothes for you. She will bear children for you. And when your children are born, she will get up in the middle of the night and make sure that your children are all well and healthy and looked after. And she won't ask you to get up or bother yourself. You'll be able to just sleep in and she will do all of that for you. She <laughs> and then... If there ever should be a disagreement between you and the woman, then she will be the first one to admit she was wrong yeah. and to apologise. And Adam said, <laughs> Adam said, that sounds amazing. What will it cost me? And God said, it will cost you an arm and a leg. And Adam said, what will I get for a rib? And the rest is history, as we know. It's just a joke. Don't criticise me. It's only a bit of fun. Um, I didn't grow up as a Christian, as many of you know. I didn't grow up as a believer. I didn't believe any of this stuff. Um, I, 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 my parents didn't. So in one sense, why would I? And I'm not blaming them for that. That was just their outlook. That was just, they'd made that decision and that was the life that they were living. But there came a point in my life when I started to question. In fact, I heard a good story about this. This was again about a husband and wife, funnily enough. And they got married, and this time it was the husband. He, as they got married, his mum had always done this beautiful brisket Sunday roast. It was absolutely to die for. He loved it. And so he decided that he was going to cook this for his wife. And he followed his mother's recipe. And he made the brisket. He peeled the potatoes and, and trimmed all the veg and all of that stuff. And, and then it came to the, the piece of brisket. And he cut the ends off the brisket. And then he put it in the tray and he placed it in the oven. And he cooked it to perfection. He had his fancy new little meat thermometer to make sure it was done just right. And he made all of the meal and prepared it for the wife. And they sat down and they ate it together and it was delicious. And they both enjoyed it. And his wife asked him and she said, why did you cut the ends off the brisket? Is that to make it more tender, to make it nicer, to make it more enjoyable? He said, well, to be honest, he said, I don't actually know. He said, that's just what my mum always did and so I just followed what my mum always did. So the following Sunday they were around at the parents, uh, his parents for Sunday uh, tea, Sunday lunch and they turned up and after the meal he said to his mum, he said, mum, he said, I was cooking the, you know, the meal and I was doing the brisket and it all went fantastic and it was beautiful. He said, and then he said, 
my wife was asking me, why do you cut the ends off the brisket? And I said, actually, I don't know. I just did what you always do. Why do we do it, mum? And his mum said, well, to be honest, I don't know why we do it. I just did what your grandma did. She always did it. So they were both kind of puzzled, and it was the first time they'd really thought about this. So they phoned up the grandma, and they picked up the phone, and he said, Grandma, why? Why do you cut the ends off the brisket in, in this meal? It tastes so nice. Is it to make it you know, more succulent, more juicy? Does it let the, the juices enter into the meat? What is it? She said, it's because my tray was small, and it was the only way I could fit the brisket into the tray. <laughs> But isn't this life? Don't we just blindly follow so often the things that people have done before us? And listen, it's not a criticism. It's not a bad thing. In life, generally, we do the things that people have done before us that work because generally they're good things to do. It's just sometimes there's a time to question. And I got to a point in my life where I started to question this this idea that there was no God this idea that we were all alone, this idea that life, when you die, that is it, and there is nothing more. That was what my mum told me. Well, when you die, I was like, what What happens when you die? What happens, mum? Where do we go? What, What happens? Nothing. It's just blackness. That's the end. There's nothing more. That is all there is. It was worse than any horror film I ever watched because it used to keep me awake at night, and it used to worry me, and it used to concern me, but I accepted it. And I was very science-minded. I, I love science. I love maths. I, I loved all that stuff. And so for me, it naturally fitted what the world was telling me. That, and, and in one sense, I didn't want to question it. I was just happy. And I wouldn't have never have just believed just because it would have made me feel better. For me, that was hypocrisy. And I don't know about you, but I, I don't really want to build my life on hypocrisy. Anyone here want to do that? That's not what I want to do. But there came a point where I did start to question. And I did start to question. And I had a friend who spoke to me and and we used to talk about, about God and about this belief in God that he had. And it just got me thinking. And there was a moment, and, and I would say I've spent a long, a large part of my life sometimes thinking about this moment and going back and, and trying to wonder how did it happen? There was this moment and, and how do I explain it? And I've tried lots of different ways. And something came to me as I was preparing this message that I thought, wow, this sums it up really, really well, I, I, I think. It's not perfect, no metaphor is, no analogy is, but it's very close to it. And anyone in here like watching the telly? And, you know, anyone seen any crime dramas or maybe a program with a crime drama in it? Anyone seen that? And they get the CSIs in, don't they? You've seen that bit. Maybe you've seen Crime Scene Investigation and all of those kind of films. And, and one of the things you see them do, particularly when there's been a murder, there's been a murder. That was it. I can't put that Scottish accent on, but it sounds really good, doesn't it, when they do it? I should have practiced that. But they come in and, and they'll, they've covered up the body, haven't they? And they've, they've got rid of the body and they've covered up the, the scene. They've cleaned it and everything. And you all know what they do by now, I would imagine. They get this spray, don't they? It's called luminol, I think is what it's called. And they go around and they spray this luminol all over every, everyone. Have you see, I take it many of you have seen this, probably most of you. And they go around and they spray everything with this luminol and nothing happens until they do something else. They turn the lights off and then they turn on 
a different type of light. It's actually called an ultraviolet light. And the minute they turn on the ultraviolet light, the minute the natural light goes off and the ultraviolet light comes on, suddenly, if there's any blood in the room, it is illuminated. Yeah. It, it glows. You can see it. It reacts with the luminol and the ultraviolet light suddenly makes it all visible. And the way that works, ultraviolet light, you, you may or may not know this, the human eye has a, a spectrum of light that it can see. And it starts at the red end and it ends at the violet end. And, and our eyes are designed and created so that we can see. Light is just a wave. It's like music. You, some of you will know that there comes a point with music, if the notes got higher and higher and higher on the keyboard, eventually there comes a point where it's beyond what we can hear. And that's a wave, and it's a pressure wave that our ears are, are, are designed to pick up and to hear. And your eyes are the same. They're designed to be able to pick up certain wavelengths that they can see, and your brain interprets that, and it forms and makes it into an image that you can understand that's going to make sense to you. Ultraviolet is beyond that wavelength. It's just past it. It's just beyond it. In fact, apparently there are some people that can actually see ultraviolet light. It appears as a, as a kind of very whitish violet kind of color into them, but they are very few and far between. But when this ultraviolet light goes on, and the word ultra, it means beyond. It means beyond the visible spectrum. Beyond what we can see with our natural eyes. It's higher. The word ultra in science and in maths, it means higher. Ultrasonic. The ultras are, are a, a terrible gang that, that they say they're beyond, they're the greatest, and they'll go around and they'll beat you up if you upset them and all of this kind of stuff. But ultraviolet light is beyond that natural thing that we can see. But once it's on, once the natural eyes are not using their senses anymore and the ultraviolet light is on, suddenly it is illuminated. And suddenly you can see. And it was like that. That moment was like that. It was like my natural eyes had been turned off for a moment and, and my ultra eyes, if you like, had been opened up. My eyes had been opened to a spectrum that you cannot see in the natural, but you can see in the spiritual. And this was incredible. This was absolutely life-changing. It transformed my life, and it's transformed so many other lives since then. And there was a, a, a man in the Bible called Abraham, and so many of you, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you'll know the story of Abraham. Can I take this, this point, this, this, this opportunity to speak to you about the Bible? How many of you, I don't want you to put hands up necessarily, read the Bible? How many have read the Bible and have read it, all of it, from cover to cover maybe, or in any other kind of order, maybe even multiple times, you know, if you want to really grow in your faith and know God, then the Bible is the first source of that knowledge of God. You know, there's something about the Bible that he has not left us alone. 
He's not left us alone. He's left us a book, his word. And it's the most incredible book. Right from the Old Testament through to the New Testament, it is an incredible book. And if you've never read it all before, then dip into it. Read it. Don't try and get too deep into it, I would suggest, the first time. I would suggest, if you've never read it all, then take the opportunity, take the, 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 the challenge, if you like, to read it. Read it all. Read the books you've never read. Just read them casually. Just get an overview. Just like what, looking at a picture from a distance. Just to get an idea of what the whole is. And then once you've read it and you know it all, then you can start to zoom in on little bits. Like the Mona Lisa, maybe start to concentrate on the enigmatic smile that they talk about and, and different aspects of it and all of that. But if you've never read the whole thing, if you've never seen the whole picture and you just saw the enigmatic smile, the mouth of the Mona Lisa, it wouldn't mean much to you, would it? You wouldn't really be able to understand it. But if you'd seen the whole, suddenly you can start to zoom in and the bits that you zoom in on suddenly start to make more sense because they've got context. You can understand them. And Abraham in the Bible is, is one of the major key, key characters. He's considered to be, the, well he is, the father of faith. He's the father of faith. When Abraham was walking the earth, there was no Bible. He actually became the Bible in many, many ways. His life and, and his story and, and what happened after him, he became the father of it all in terms of faith. And God spoke to Abraham, not through the Bible because there wasn't one, but God spoke to him and, and Abraham believed that God had spoken to him. And God gave him the most incredible, incredible promise. In fact, God used a metaphor, like I've used a few already this morning. He, God used a metaphor for Abraham to help him to understand. He said, I've got a promise for you, Abraham. It is an incredible promise. I'm paraphrasing here. God didn't use those words, but it was an incredible promise. And the way God explained it was, he said to Abraham, he said, look at the stars, now for me and you, if we go out tonight and it's a clear night, it doesn't look like it's going to be, and we look at the stars, you, you'll, you'll see a few stars about and it might look like there's not many. But if you went somewhere, maybe into Africa or somewhere in, in, in you know, uh, Norway or somewhere like that where it's more remote, it's more desolate, you would see that there are more stars than you could ever hope to count. The stars are so vast and so numerous, you couldn't ever hope to lie there in a night and count them. In fact, it would be impossible because they're constantly moving through the sky, they're rotating, depending on where you are on the earth. And God said, if you look up and look at all of those stars, if you could count them, that's as numerous as your children will be. He said, Look at the sea, sorry, look at the, the sand, uh, the seashore. He said, look at all the grains of sand. If you could count them, that is how numerous your offspring, your people will be. And they're going to come from you. You're going to have a son. I am giving you a promise. You're going to have a son. 
and the descendants of your son will be more numerous than the stars in the sky and the grains of sand on the seashore on the shore what a visual reminder for abraham in his life every night he would look up and he would see the stars and every day he was walking around in sand and seeing it a constant reminder to abraham but this problem this sorry this promise was not without problem because this was an incredible promise in the, the, the vastness and the scale of it, but it was, there was another angle on it, and that was that Abraham's wife, Sarah, hadn't ever given, sorry about that, any children. They had no children. They were devoid of children, and they were getting older, and Sarah still had no children. In fact, there came a point when Sarah overheard the promise for herself, and she laughed at it. It was so ludicrous. So this became a big problem for them. Abraham was looking at this, this promise that God had given to him, firstly with spiritual eyes. Firstly, he was looking at it with spiritual eyes and believing God and seeing this as an incredible, incredible promise. But then Sarah came along and questioned and said, but Abraham, I can't have children. I've never been able to give you children. How are we going to do this? And they talked and, and Sarah persisted and, and she got more and more determined that they had to find a solution. It was like the, the promise was so big, they decided they had to do it themselves. They had to come up with the solution themselves. They switched back from the spiritual eyes to the natural eyes. And looking at how do we solve this problem? Sarah, you can't have children. God's given us this problem. There's got to be another way. And Sarah went. She looked around with her natural eyes. And what did she see? She saw her slave girl, Hagar. And she said, Abraham, there's the solution. She looked with her natural eyes what she could see every day. She could see that she was bearing no children for Abraham and she could see that she had a, a slave girl there that could bear children. And so she pushed Abraham and said, Abraham, you, we, we, we need to, you need to take her as your second wife and you need to have a child with her. Go and do that and that will be the child. And they did that. Abraham did that. He went and he went into uh, Hagar and they had a child and a, a child was conceived. And right from the moment of conception virtually, this became a problem. Even before the child was born, it was a problem. So much so that Hagar and Sarah suddenly became enemies and were suddenly arguing with each other. So much so that Hagar fled pregnant the child hadn't even been born at this stage and she fled she couldn't stay until eventually an angel appeared to her and said no 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 the child in your womb is going to be special the child in your womb will be special he will be a contentious child there will be problems with this child but I have not left you and I will not forsake you and so Hagar went back and eventually the child was born and his name was Ishmael. And so suddenly you've got Abraham, you've got Sarah, 
you've got Hagar and you've got Ishmael, Abraham's son and Hagar's son. And this was okay for a time, but God hadn't forgotten. God hadn't forgotten the promise. You see, the promise was never that Hagar would give Abraham a child. The promise was a promise. The promise was a promise from God. And though Abraham had gone down his own route and Sarah had gone down her own route of trying to fulfill this promise, God hadn't changed. God's plans hadn't changed. His weren't any different. He wasn't suddenly going to bow to what man had done and change his plans and change his purposes. God had gave a promise. This was God's word. And by God... He was going to fulfill that promise. I didn't, don't mean that in the swearing sense either, by the way. And eventually, suddenly, Sarah fell pregnant. This was a problem. Eventually, the, the baby was born and they named him Isaac. And then there was a point when Isaac was weaned. And at the end, tell him I'm busy. I'll, I'll be about 14 minutes, all right? I'll phone him then, all right, I'll be back in a little bit. Um, yeah, 14 minutes, hopefully, hopefully. I might be a little bit longer than that, but I'll try my best. But eventually, Hagar, I can't help but do that, Tony, sorry, mate. <laughs> eventually, um, the child was born, Isaac was born, and this became a problem. There was a weaning party, I'd imagine that was what they did in those days. The Isaac was weaned, he was suddenly on solids, that's what weaning is, isn't it? I've never really understood weaning. It is when the baby goes on to solids. I've got five kids. It's a woman's day. Yeah, I've got five kids and I still don't really fully understand what weaning is. It's just this strange word that I kind of think I understand, but I don't really know that I do. But anyway, I probably shouldn't even, yeah, let's forget about that one. But anyway, they had this party to celebrate the fact that Isaac had been weaned. He's a bit more grown up than he was the day before. So, but at this party... If you've read the story, you'll know what happened. Ishmael, he was a teenager, do you reckon, by this point? And he started mocking Isaac, laughing at him, ridiculing him. He had a problem with him. And this became a problem for Sarah. Sarah, how was she meant to stand by and watch her son now being mocked? It was a mess. We think, don't we, today that kind of, you know, divorce and then mixed families and all of these things and what do you call them? Blended families now and and there's names for them and all of these situations and, and, and I come from that actually, but we think this is a modern phenomenon. It's there right at the beginning. Right at the beginning. It's there. And this was a big, big problem. And so eventually the... Hagar was sent. Hagar and Ishmael were sent away. They couldn't remain. This was a a key, key story in the Bible. And Paul, Paul talks about it in Galatians. He's actually, when he talks about this, sometimes we forget, you know, can I encourage you, when you read the New Testament particularly, remember this. There's two ways of reading the Bible. And both are good and both are right. And you need to be able to do it from both ways. There's that way that most of us probably naturally read the Bible. And that is that this is a book that God is speaking to me personally. Anyone done that? 
you're reading it and you're like, hey, God's speaking to me personally. This is, this is God's word for me. But, you know, the New Testament, those letters, that's what they were. They were letters written to churches, to real people, to real churches, facing real problems and real issues. In fact, virtually every church in the New Testament, virtually every letter in the New Testament contained the problem that the church was struggling with. Sin issues, problems with relationships, problems with with arguments and contentions, fallings out, moaning and criticism. People coming in, spreading false teachings. People listening to false teachings and taking them on board and going, hey, well, actually, no, I think that idea sounds better. And how many times did Paul have to go back and say, whoa, stop, you've got it all wrong. Listen to me. You don't do it like that, you do it like this. And this was one of those occasions with the Galatian church. The Galatian church had had a problem with false teaching. Teachers were coming in, calling themselves teachers, weren't really teachers, and, and these guys had an agenda. How often do you see this? They had an agenda. And their agenda was that they wanted everything to be done the right way. The traditional way. The way that it was always done. You cut the ends off the brisket before you put it in the oven because that's the way we've always done it. And the, the way that it was always done was that, well, we follow the law. And put yourself in the context of the New Testament church. The law, in fact, not the New Testament church, well, the New Testament church, the, the Jewish culture at the time, the nation, their law was a thing of national pride. No other nation had what they had. They had the very words of God, the oracles of God, it calls them, That means the words of God, God, the voice of God. God speaking to them personally. No other nation on the globe, no other community on the globe claimed to have uh, books, a document written personally to them as a chosen and special nation as to how they should behave, what they should do. And this was detailed. This went into the most incredible detail. 630 commandments in the Old Testament. That's incredible, isn't it? 630 of them. So they had to have people who would study it. And the Pharisees, they called themselves, and they would check on the people to make sure they were obeying the law. And then suddenly Jesus came along and went, okay, so, you know when you read that bit, have you noticed there was a promise all the way through it? A thread running all the way through it that God's going to send a Messiah. He's going to send his son, that this that you've got is only the beginning. There's a greater promise coming. There's something far greater than all of this put together. And it's me, Jesus said. It's me. I'm the fulfillment. I'm the savior. I'm the one, the special one, the son of God, God 
himself. And the essence of what he said was very similar to the option that Abraham had. And it was this. And I would suggest that the Christian life goes a bit like this. There's the initial bit where you're given the option of being right with God. So God reveals himself to you in, in some form or another, be it through a, a, a preacher or a personal moment or whatever it is, and, and suddenly your eyes are opened, the, the natural light is turned off and the ultraviolet light is turned on, and suddenly you can see things that were always there, but they were invisible all the time. If you had eyes now to see beyond the, the, the visible spectrum, even beyond ultraviolet, you would see radio waves emanating from mobile phones. You'd see them waving around the room. You'd see them coming from this backpack here, going off to that thing there. You'd be able to see them. They'd be all around, everywhere. And it's having your eyes opened to that thing and at that point you have a choice of carrying on living like the rest of the world lives just living this natural life just trusting what you can see and what you can touch and what you can feel and I know there's a pulpit there because I can see it and I can feel it and I know it's there and, and I don't think there's anything in between me and this thing but there's a big post here I can see it I can touch it I can feel it but I'm not convinced that there's, I'm still not, I'm, I get this stuff, but I'm still not convinced that there's invisible rays between there. It just seems far-fetched, doesn't it? But there is clearly, isn't there? And you've got that initial choice of trusting and believing God, that there's more than your eyes can see. But here's the thing, that's a moment. The rest of it is a life. And that choice See, Abraham had that right at the beginning when God spoke to him and he said, he said I'm, I'm giving you a promise. A promise. A promise, a special promise. Like the promise of a Messiah, but your promises of a son and a nation that's going to come from you. But then Abraham had the constant then, the constant choice, the daily choice to believe, to believe what God had told him, to keep trusting to keep faith, to keep going with the, the life of faith, the life of what he believed in, not the life of what he could see, the life of what he was hoping for, not the life of, of what was around him, the, the life of the spiritual, not the natural, the life of belief, not what he could see, the life of grace and hope, not the life of law. And then, but there came a point when Sarah approached him, and in that moment, and she said, take Hagar, he went, okay, this spiritual one, this believe in this promise of this God that I can't see, that's difficult, so I'm going to go down the route of law, because the natural law says when your wife can't have children, when she's too old, you've got to go and get another wife if you want to have children, isn't that what the natural law says? But the spiritual law said something else. It said no. And it's this constant battle that we face daily, day after day after day. Do you take and believe and live your life based on what you can see with your own natural eyes? 
what's around you, the natural law? Or do you trust in God and the spiritual and the promises of what he's telling you? And in Galatians, and, and I've got written down here, but you know what? The spiritual law, the belief, the grace, do you know what it leads to? It leads to the favor of God. It leads to joy. It leads to blessing. It, believes, it leads to things that you could never imagine. Whereas the natural law, only what you can see. If you can't see it, you can't have it. It's not yours. It's blind. And in Galatians, Paul said this. In Galatians 4.21, speaking to the Galatian church, he's addressed a few verses earlier about the, 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 this issue. He says to them, do you not realize before the revelation of God, the revelation of Jesus came to you, you were living as slaves. Do you not realize that? Have you forgotten that? You were living as slaves, but the promise of Jesus was to set you free, to set you free from the law of slavery, the law of bondage. Bondage to what? Bondage to the law. 630 laws, break one, you broke them all. In fact, as Tony was sharing his great metaphor this morning, if you weren't in of a, a company car that he ended up driving, and it, it basically had this breathalyzer in or has one in, due to another employee, and, and basically before the car will start, you have to take a breathalyzer to make sure that you, you're not over the limit. And if you don't, if you don't pass, the car won't start. Yeah. And I, I, when Tony was telling me this about what he was going to share, what came to me was the, the metaphor in the Old Testament that basically every morning they had to sanctify themselves. They had to go to the priest and say, hey, I, I, I've sinned. I've got it wrong. Here, here's, here's, here's my price that I'm going to pay. And it was whatever you could afford in those days. It might have been a pigeon. It might have been a goat. It might have been a flock, of her, uh, a massive herd, uh, a, f a huge flock, whatever it was, depending on how rich you were, how big the sin was, all of that kind of stuff. Paul says in verse 21, Galatians 4, he says, Tell me you who want to live under the law. Do you know what the law actually says? Think about this. If you want to live by the natural law, you've got to eat of the fruit of the natural law. You can't have the natural law and the blessings of the spiritual. You can't have both. They're not compatible. The scriptures say that Abraham had two sons, one from his slave wife and one from his freeborn wife. The son from the slave was born in a, in a human attempt to bring about the fulfillment of God's promise. But the son of the freeborn wife was born as God's own fulfillment of his 
promise. The son of the freeborn wife was God's own fulfillment of his promise. And these two women serve as an illustration of God's two covenants. The first woman, Hagar, represents Mount Sinai, where people received the law that enslaved them. That enslaved them. The law enslaves. The law enslaves. Every time you're trying to go down the natural route and you're trying to come up with the natural answers to your problems, and I'm not saying we shouldn't live in the real world and we should just be kind of ethereal and just blindly trust God. No, we walk by faith, not by sight. But it's just a different type of sight. It's not seeing with the natural eyes, it's seeing with the spiritual eyes. We need each other to do it. It's a community thing. If you understand it, there's no lone rangers in the kingdom of God. God doesn't have lone ranges. It's not about going off on your own and just, hey, I believe this is what God said and just blindly doing it on your own. It's about us coming together and doing it as a community. To understand the Bible is to understand that unity is one of the foundation pillars of the Bible. It's like one of these pillars. Without it, the wall comes down. The roof caves in. The structure falls apart. Only in unity. Only together. So powerful that Jesus said, where you come together, where two or three are gathered together in my name and agree. And agree. We cannot do it on our own. And now... Jerusalem is just like Mount Sinai in Arabia because she and her children live in slavery to the law. This was that community of Israelites that had, were so determined, they were so proud of this law that they'd been given, they became slaves to it. They could never break free from it, some of them. They could never let it go and take on the higher law that God had given them, that God had promised them. But the other woman, Sarah, represents the heavenly Jerusalem. Spiritual Jerusalem. There's the natural Jerusalem and the spiritual Jerusalem. In fact, even today, if you look, they would talk about Israel and they would say there's the political Israel. And then there's the, they would use the word religious. Generally, we don't like the word religious, do we? Because it, it, it points to the law and rituals. But they're talking about the spiritual Israel. And Paul goes on and, and basically, there's not time to give you it all, but Read it. Go and read Galatians. Go away and read it as a book written to a real church having problems, having people coming in, giving false teachings and trying to lead people astray and trying to cause issues and all of this kind of thing. And then a pastor coming in and saying, stop. Stop. 
Listen. Listen to what God says. Listen to what he says. But he, he, he brings it to a head in chapter 5 and he says this. He says, so Christ, that's Jesus, has truly set us free. Now make sure that you stay free and you don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. We have two choices today. You can follow the natural or you can follow the spiritual. You can follow the law or you can follow grace. You can follow what you can see with your natural eyes or you can follow what you can see with your spiritual eyes. Amen? Amen. Amen. Bless you guys.